0: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash stuff. Hey,
2: everybody. I want to talk to you for a second here about Canva, specifically Canva presentations that are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work, sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation. So start designing today at Canva.com. Design for work. Just go to Canva, C-A-N-V-A, Com.
0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from howstuffworks.com.
1: Hey and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant and that makes us Stuff You Should Know.
2: Take 2. <laughs> rarely do we have a take 2. Very rarely. But we did today.
1: Yeah, we did. We started just kind of talking and shop.
2: And Jerry's like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: But anyway, here we are. We're back. We're happy. Everything's good. And um, we're going to talk a little bit about earthworms, right? Yes. You feeling good about this one? I am. Very interesting stuff. I wrote this article specifically so we could podcast on it. Yeah. So, Chuck. Yes. uh, Have you heard of a man named Charles Darwin?
2: You know I love Chucky D.
1: So Chucky Ch- D. Ch- Chuck D. <laughs> Chuck D. Charles Darwin, um, very famous for the On the Origin of the Species. Yeah. Um, incredibly important work. Did you know, though, that The Origin of the Species was outsold for, in the 19th century by another book of his called The Formation of Vegetable Mold Through the Action of Worms with Observations on Their Habits? That sold more copies, for real? Yeah, f- through, uh, throughout the rest of the 19th century. It was published wow. in 1881. Uh-huh. Um, and I think like the origin of the species came a little after that. So, But just during the 19th century, for a while there, um, the formation of vegetable mold was Crazy. outselling on the origin of the species.
2: I saw today where he uh, studied earthworms for, it said, 39 years.
1: Yeah, it was, this book was very near and dear to his heart, like this topic was. He spent a lot of time really looking at earthworms. 39 years.
2: I guess he died, because why would you give up at 39? I would say, let's just make it an even 40.
1: I think he wrote the book and was like, okay, there you go, I'm done. I'm on to some, let's go to Galapagos. Right, exactly. You know? Um, He he came up with in this 39 years and in the.
0: Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Book some very, um, very well-understood observations that are still accepted today. Yeah. Right? Um, as a matter of fact, we have a quote from him as read by him.
2: All right, let's hear You it. want to hear it? Yeah.
1: It may be
2: doubted whether there are many other animals which have played so important a part in the history of the world as have these lowly organized creatures.
1: So there you have it. Wow, the earthworm is very, very important. I didn't know he talked like that. I didn't either. It's kind of surprising. Um, but he uh, this this idea, this concept that the earthworm is extremely important to uh, the earth was kind of put forth by Darwin. Has been accepted as gospel since then. And in the the decades and centuries f- since Darwin, he did such a good job that earthworm research kind of fell by the wayside. Yeah. Scientific community was classifying classifying as extinct, like worms they just hadn't seen in a while, that would just later pop back up, like the giant Palouse earthworm in uh, the Pacific Northwest of the United States. Oh yeah, it was thought to be extinct, classified as such in the '80s, and then uh, in 2010 it pops up, and they're like, oh, it's not extinct. The worm popped up. <laughs> yeah, and that happens a, a lot with earthworms. Like we. People just classified them as extinct. So this kind of like these appearances have kind of reinvigorated science and its inquiry into earthworms. I wonder how
2: he got on it. Who, Darwin? Yeah, I mean, out of all the different things he was studying, I wonder what, how he honed in on the earthworm and knew know. its value. Just Because if no one else had studied its value... I would never look at an earthworm and think it's very valuable at all.
1: No, but people before Darwin realized the value of earthworms. Okay. Like Aristotle called so them the discover. intestines of the soil. Okay, I got you. No, but he's the one who dedicated 39 years to studying them. Okay. Um, so just in sheer size alone, um, I guess in sheer volume is a better way to put it, Earthworms are they're, they're, they have a substantial impact on earth. Stat time? I, I think so.
2: Three thousand species. Notice I didn't say species. You know, people say species. Sorry, species. (laughs) Germans? No, a lot of people say species. uh, Species. Species.
1: Species. Species. See, I don't know which one I say. I think both is acceptable.
2: I think not. (laughs) Species. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, They have a range in size from about a centimeter to nine feet, although... They go way more than that. Yeah, I think the world record I found was uh, one in South Africa was 22 feet long. A
1: 22-foot-long earthworm. That's huge. And there are plenty others. Japan has some giant ones. Australia does too, of course.
2: I found one. We'll talk about that.
1: Lots of giant freaks of nature.
2: Uh, But here's here's the cool stat of the day for me. Uh, Plus, we get to say the word hectare. Just close to two and a half acres.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's like 2.47.
2: A single hectare, you can find 500,000 to 2 million worms, and their total biomass, wet biomass, equals 10 times the total weight of all the other animals living above ground combined on that same size spot of land. Yeah. On that same hectare. Yeah. That's nutty. That is nutty, especially considering that worms don't
1: go that deep. Well, yeah. Maybe 10 feet into the soil. Let's say
2: there's 12 deer on that hectare. Yeah. I mean that's going to be a lot of weight right there, it's, it's just like, from
1: the deer. Say uh, uh, say each deer weighs 150 pounds. It's like uh, 1,800 pounds. Yeah, you know, and that's if there's only some, a dozen deer. Some amount of kilograms. Yeah, that's probably like 900 kilograms. We'll so the point is a lot of worms. Yeah, there are. There's a ton of worms. Um, they're spread all over the place. But here's an interesting fact. If um, if you've read 1493, you probably already know this. Charles Mann's Brilliant follow-up to his triumphant 1491.
2: I can't wait for 1494. Yeah. Look out for that That's one. That's going to be a
1: good one. <laughs> He's just going to pick some random date like 1955. Right. <laughs> um, if, the, if you go into uh, the average North American woods mm-hmm. in the northern United States, say, um, and you find an earthworm, that earthworm, had you dug in the same spot 500 years before, you wouldn't have found any earthworms there. Like all earthworms in North America and Canada above about the 40th degree latitude, um, are new. They're relatively recent immigrants from Asia and Europe. And they hitched a ride thanks to the colonists to America in plants, root the balls. soil, yeah, yeah, root balls that were attached to plants, um, that were imported to the United States and Canada, um, from Asia and Europe.
2: Yes, Chuck. I have a question. Yes, Chuck. <laughs> I have a few questions for you because you wrote this and it's always nice to speak to the author. And you're right in front of me. So, how's, how's that? I'm right here. Uh, do they know what was here before the ice age that killed off all the original native species? Chuck, like, surely there were worms. That is an
1: excellent question.
2: Okay. No. They don't know? No, they know that. I mean, I guess not, because it was pre ice age. It's not like they had records.
1: There were some. There's there's, there's fossil re- there's fossil records of earthworms that go back like 165 million years. Like there was a huge giant earthworm that was armor plated, right? <laughs> really? But yeah, but the stuff in North America apparently the fossil record is fairly incomplete here. Okay. Um, they do suspect that a lot of worms made their way southward toward warmer ground. When these glacial ice sheets started bearing down from Canada and yeah, into everything the Northern itself, it a lot of stuff died. Some stuff hightailed it south. So you can bet that if you go to Southern California or Mexico and yeah. dig and find a worm, that's probably the same
2: species that were higher species.
1: up, species <laughs> that were hi- further north. Uh-huh. You know, prior to the last okay. ice
2: age. Because you make a point later that it's considered an invasive species because it's not native, right? but i thought well surely they weren't that different before the ice age right
1: well the species the species that are here <laughs> especially um the common european earthworm which we here in the united states call night crawlers yeah that's from europe which is why it's the common european nightworm right those are re- recent immigrants okay those guys weren't here before right so the other reason they're invasive chuck is since the end of the last ice age say 10 to 20,000 years ago yeah these woodlands in the northern United States uh, developed, they adapted, they changed right. to life without earthworms. Now they're having to adapt to sure. life with earthworms. That makes sense. Which makes earthworms invasive
2: now. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. All right. Well, hey, look at there. We covered a bit at the end. Yeah, no doubt. We're going to get out of here early now. Thanks. <laughs> uh, another cool point you make is if uh, you dig down into the earth in your backyard, in the earth a couple of feet, hmm you're probably going to find all three classifications of earthworm because they're they're classified by where they live in the soil because they're all so similar yeah. in appearance.
1: I mean, yeah, except for like maybe how thick around they are, how many segments they have, um, how long they are. That's pretty much the differences in earthworms. They're all very similar. Yeah. Like wherever you are. But there are three classes, and like you said, they're based on where they live. Like there's the ones above ground. Epi- epigeic. Yeah. Is that how you pronounce that? I've been pronouncing it in my head Gaik, but Giak sounds a lot. Ooh, bigger. I like Gaik. Do you like gaic? Yeah, let's go with that. Well, because it's a it's derivative of Gaia, earth. Right. And Epi is above. So this is the this is the classification of earthworms that live like in the leaf litter, which is also called the litter horizon. That pile of leaves and organic material that, that covers the soil.
2: That the these red wigglers, red mm-hmm. worms, yeah. have a lot to do with the fact that it's you know eventually going to be black and slimy
1: yeah almost all of the fat, all of, they have almost everything to do with that i mean there's other like microbes and protozoa and other stuff like that breaking sure. it down but the worms are the ones that can get it
2: done so those red wigglers are fun to play with if you're a kid uh so are the next level down you get to the endogaic as we'll say now mm-hmm. they live in the top soil the sort of you know how deep like the first several inches yeah you know like the dark topsoil
1: yeah the good yeah. stuff yes
2: as I like to call it yeah
1: and they spend their whole lives beneath the soil which is why they're usually like very light in color gray pinkish they're white. kind of uglier they're disgusting yeah have you ever seen that movie The Layer of the White Worm no that's a great horror it's movie really yeah I've heard it it's one of, of it. Hugh Grant's first movies oh it's awesome
2: was he the white worm no no he was the dude okay <laughs> He played a man. Yeah. Uh, You say because they live under the soil uh, full time Mm -hmm. that the least amount of information is known about them. But another question. Okay. The next level down, the uh, Anesic. Anesic? Anesic. They hold the night crawlers. Right. The deepest dwelling ones, but it seems like we know more about them than the other guys the little pink and gray guys so why would that be?
1: Well the reason is is because the little pink and gray guys the uh, epigaic ones um, spend their whole lives underground so they just stay there yes okay they also make horizontal burrows right right so like they don't have to come up at all they don't they have almost nothing to do with leaf decomposition So they, the night crawlers come up on.
2: and then go back down
1: Exactly not only do night crawlers come up they come up and travel as far as like 62 feet in a night looking for food, like, they hang out above ground. The epigaic ones, you have to dig down for them. They're not coming up to, to greet you. So these scientists don't have spades? That's what I'm saying, man. <laughs> like, the, like science generally was like, okay, Darwin wrote the book on Earthworms. you right. don't have to there do any is. more investigation about that. Interesting. Yeah. Uh,
2: another cool fact about the Nightcrawler is that they... Go upstairs to to grab some food and yeah. bring it back down. They they're like, hey, that leaf is really choice and moist. Yeah, so I'm gonna grab it and take it back downstairs and just chow till my little belly bursts.
1: Exactly. I love that. Yeah, but it also kind of gives you an idea of like just how powerful like a nightcrawler is. It yeah. drags its food back to its house. You know.
2: I used to hate uh, fishing uh, with worms.
1: That's that that. And the potential, I, one time I went fishing and caught a brim. Mm-hmm. And, um, I didn't have a hook remover. And this thing, this brim swallowed this hook like uh, crazy. Yeah. And I was trying so hard to get it out. And it was just like obvious that this worm, this, um, fish was dying. And one of his buddies was just sitting there almost at the bank, almost up on the ground, watching me. Howling. Just <laughs> looking at me, like, "Why did you do that?" So oh. that, and then the uh, that. So you clubbed that one. I was like, "Stop looking at me, fish, yeah. and just punch the water." Um, that, the potential of a fish dying, and then the guarantee of worms dying. Yeah, uh, made me quit fishing forever. Yeah, I use artificial. Which sticks because fish is fun. Fishing's I, fun. I love to
2: fish. Yeah,
1: but I, I just don't do it anymore.
2: All right. Well, that's sad
1: for you. I'll
2: club fish. Like, I'll go clubbing. (laughs) (laughs) But I won't actually use, like, a rod and reel. Uh, Earthworms are segmented, Josh, which is also very interesting. Uh, They are from the phylum uh, annelid, which means ringed worm. Yeah. And there's about 100 to 150 of these rings, and they're each controlled separately, little muscles, which is very important because they expand and contract Mm -hmm. to move their little slimy bodies forward.
1: Yeah. And they have these bristles at the front toward the head the anterior end, um, that are retractable. They're called setae. And um, they can just go bing and dig into the dirt right. and hold the head in place while the rest of the the body kind of contracts to get smaller to move forward like that. So these setae go in and out right. depending on whether the the head's moving or is, it needs to be anchored so the rest of the body can catch up.
2: And that's how they scoot along at 62 feet per night. Yes. For night crawlers. So. Um, pretty much Chuck, I don't know what we're naming
1: this one yet, but one of the, one of the, um, the suggestions you made was earthworms eating and pooping machines. Yeah. Kind of like sharks. And I mean, kind of, um, but possibly even more beneficial than sharks. Sharks are like an apex (laughs) predator, right? Yeah, of course. Earthworms are not an apex predator, but like I said, Aristotle called them the intestines of the soil. And one of the reasons why is because they just eat and eat, and eat, and the stuff that they do eat, they poop out, and it's actually, what's crazy, remember the digestion um, episode? How could I forget? So like the stuff that comes out of us, it's like, nobody needs that. It's total waste. Yeah. With the worm, it's actually better
2: than it was before. Worm poop is better than the food it eats. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. And the way it eats is even cooler, I think. Um, they, they obviously eat, and you're not going to be able to tell a huge difference between the mouth end and the, the anus end.
1: No, unless you really dig your fingers
2: in there. (laughs) Uh, but at the mouth end, they're going to, they're going to pass dirt and organic matter into their mouth, and it's going to go into an area called the crop. Yeah. Where they store it for a little while. Right. Then into the gizzard, and this is the coolest part to me. In the gizzard, they have these tiny pebbles that they've already eaten and those pebbles grind the food up even more like a little food processor yeah to make it easier to pass through that's right that is so cool and uh in the intestinal walls they are lined with blood vessels and sort of like our own blood vessels they absorb and distribute nutrients right so it's not that much different than people
1: yeah no it's not the the thing about earthworms though is the the nutrients especially nitrogen um that they eat, that they pass out, is about 75% of what was, say, locked into a leaf, right? Right. So they only keep like a quarter of the available nitrogen for themselves. It's awful nice. But through digestion, what was once just locked into this leaf and was totally unusable yeah. to like a tree root is now digested and broken up and, and, and available. It's called nitrogen fixing, and that's what worms do. Their casting, their feces is... Broken down
2: nitrogen, which is why people use worms for composting.
1: That's exactly right.
2: They're the the secret ingredient. Well, they're not a secret, but key ingredient to compost.
1: Yeah, but that's the that's the uh, epigaic right? The ones that live above ground. Yeah, the red wigglers are the compost ones. The earthworms, like the anecic ones, they're big into composting too, but they do it below ground.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, earthworm has five hearts. Yeah. Kind, of, kind of a neat fact right there. Yeah. I would say. Aortic arches. And uh I saw I think I saw in another photo like they have one of the main ones. Is that right? And then four other ones, or are they all equal?
1: I think that they are there's a main one. Okay. I believe so. You'd think I'd know.
2: <laughs> you and Chuck D. Uh breathing through their skin is another cool trait. They don't have lungs. Yeah. But they still need to breathe, so they just Pass it uh, passively through the skin, yeah. inhaling and exhaling. No, well, there's no inhale or exhale. Yeah, it just no happens. But I call that an inhale, even though the little I, body isn't. Breathing.
1: When I was writing this, I had to go back. I was like, no, they're not inhaling. Right. Yeah. Um, th- as long as their skin is coated in this mucus that they produce, yeah. that's how air exchange is is allowed to take place. Um, and it, if there's enough broken down available oxygen in A body of water a worm can live in water it can survive in water for a while because that air exchange is still taking place they're just grabbing oxygen yeah um the problem is is when they encounter like really dry hot air like above ground yeah i think we've all seen that
2: sad sad sight
1: right so if you if you've ever seen like a, a a worm that's curled up and is dry on the sidewalk that worm suffocated to death because it wasn't able to breathe. Its mucus dried out. That's so sad. It couldn't breathe. I know. And all it needed to do
2: was reach those leaves. Yeah. But it failed. On the sidewalk. And that happens a lot in Georgia, obviously. You see a lot of those in the summertime. Oh, yeah. Uh, and to, to make sure that they survive, they don't have eyes, so it's not like they can say, oh, the sun's out. Right. But they're able to sense light through these uh, photosensitive cells on their skin that convert light into electrical impulses. So they feel this and say, "Hey, it's sunny out. I need to burrow down a little bit more, yeah, pretty cool, yep, and this and is why these buggers have survived for so long.
1: It is, and um, that's also the the role for their brain that their brain plays is to say, "I'm sensing some light, so let's move down a little further where there's not light." That's pretty much the extent of the worm brain.
2: Yeah, that's what I saw. They, um, they said if you remove the brain, yeah. then you're hardly going to notice any change in behavior. Right. Except, I guess, they would dry up in the sun. Yeah. Right.
1: So maybe that's what we've seen is brainless worms on sidewalks.
2: Yeah, or maybe they lost part of it. Someone removed their brains. We can go ahead and talk about that, the regeneration.
1: Okay, okay. go ahead.
2: Because I need some explanation on that part. I get it. A worm, if, if it's... uh a Part of it is chopped off somehow. Yeah. Um, they can regenerate, uh, more, more toward the tail than the head. Is that right? So, like, the, if you
1: cut a worm in half, yeah. Only one half is going to regenerate. Oh, uh, okay. And most That's likely, what I was confused about. it's the head end. The, they have an easier time regenerating their tail than they have their head. That makes sense. Um, the thing is, is one of the joys of this is like, anytime there's a question, or something's vague, I can be like, yeah, science really dropped the ball on earthworm research <laughs> right. for a century. Not my um, fault. They, there, there is evidence that like, uh, in both sides can regenerate into two new worms. People right. have documented this supposedly. Um, there's like different, um, c- uh, contrary evidence about how much could regenerate. Uh, or how little, like how little of a segment you need to regenerate into a new worm. Right. So there's a bunch of, apparently there's a bunch of evidence out there that says like worms are spectacular at regenerating and others are saying they're a little more limited than we think. Well, any kind of regeneration is pretty amazing if you ask me. Yeah, I agree. But if you want to make a, a bet with your friend, a very cruel friend who had just cut <laughs> a worm directly in half, which end was going to regenerate, always put your money
2: on the tail end. Cool. I could never, I mean, it's just a little worm, but I could never do that because they just squirm so much like they're in horrible pain. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. Have you read Consider the Lobster? No. Uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, like his his article for Gourmet Magazine. It's good. It, well, they sent him to like the, the Lobster Festival and you know, we were just expecting like a kind of a travel foodie article. And instead he went... And did a bunch of research on whether or not <laughs> lobsters feel pain because oh, you know they're boiled to death.
2: Yeah, and don't they make noises too while that happens? They do. They um scratch like the
1: pot trying to get out. Of and course everything. they do. But the key is is like, yes. Surely they feel pain. Of right. course they feel pain. Um they it's been shown that they have nerve receptors that, you know, sense pain. Do they experience suffering? Right. So is that worm squirming in in pain and suffering or just pain? And really, does it matter? I mean, and think inflicting pain on anything is cruel, but inflicting suffering is evil.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I don't eat much lobster.
1: Yeah. Yumi read that and was like, I'm never eating lobster again. I was like, yeah. Oh, I like a good lobster bisque, though. I love lobster, man. Yeah. But there's another cool thing from this article. Did you know that until probably about the 20th century, uh, people considered lobster like sea insects? Well, they and kind like, of are. It was for like the 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 poor and yeah. the um, the basically the lower classes. And there were actually laws apparently in New England about how many times a week you could feed patients in an insane asylum lobster because really? it was considered cruel.
2: I believe that because from the research I've done, it's amazing that lobsters are considered some great thing now yeah. because they're kind of bottom feeding. Yeah. A, I think they're likened to spiders as close to anything. Yeah. And like they'll like spiders. cannibalize
1: one another. Yeah. They're just like
2: really crazy. Boy, you dip it in that drawn butter.
1: I know. I'm That's with you. Good stuff. Well, I can kiss lobsters goodbye too.
2: All right. So let's talk about reproduction. I, I can handle this first part, but I did get confused when it comes to the clotellum yeah, and the you, fertilization. So, so you know, like the band on an earthworm.
1: Well, let's talk about the first part first. Okay. Earthworm reproduction. Yeah. You wanted, this is the fact for me.
2: (laughs) They're simultaneous hermaphrodites. Yeah. All of them.
1: Yeah. Remember that grouper that was in the tank when we swam with the whale sharks? Do I? That's called a sequential hermaphrodite, where like at some point during that grouper's life, it changes sex. Right. Right? Um, With simultaneous hermaphrodites, they have both reproductive organs of male and female for their whole lives.
2: Which is pretty cool, and a, another great reason why they've hung around in such vast numbers forever. Yeah. So uh, what they do, if they want to make love, <laughs> is uh, they do a little New Hampshire-Vermont action and line up uh, opposite, head to tail. Oh, goodness. They uh, excrete all that mucus that we were talking about. Uh, they excrete so much of that that they form a little mucus tube the that slime they, tube. they both get in. Or they're in, I guess. But they used to like rub against one another. Well, the trick is though, they're encased in this tube, right? So when they release their semen, it's just rubs around until it finds the semen receptacle. Is that right? Of the other worm. Well, obviously. Right. <laughs>
1: yeah. But yeah, that's exactly right. That would be they be perverse. They they rub, they rub on one another with their slime tubes and their semen's all over their slime tubes and then yeah, that they that's how they exchange
2: seminal fluid. So I get all that, but this next part confuses me a little and I might suggest you uh, rewrite it to make it a little easier. Really? Before you publish? Well, I this is this is
1: unedited, so <laughs> I need to go through it. But um okay, I'll uh, I'll see if I can explain it. And this is taken um Largely from a guy named, uh, I think his name's Jim Conrad. He, he wrote some pretty good, interesting, and very well written books on earthworms. So I was probably trying not to paraphrase or plagiarize him, (laughs) which is why I'm like, oh, I'll just make it more confusing than he did. Um, basically, you know, the band on the earthworm? Yeah. Like, say, a nightcrawler, that thick, the thickest band? That's the clitellum. Yeah. It's like
2: 15 segments in, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and, uh, But in like three or four segments wide, but it's just one segment. Right. So the clitellum is responsible for creating another band of mucus, a slime tube, right? And what that does, that carries the eggs. It moves over the earthworm. Mm -hmm. It moves over the place where the eggs are stored. Okay. Attaches the eggs to the slime tube. Okay. Um, The slime tube then keeps moving forward across the seminal receptacle where the other worm sperm is now deposited. Right. So as the slime tube with the eggs attached move over the seminal receptacle, the eggs become fertilized oh, okay. by the other worm sperm. That slime tube from the clitellum uh, keeps going over the head and as the worm as it passes all the way over the worm's head, it closes off, right? Because it's mucus yeah. and forms a cocoon. And now inside that cocoon are fertilized worm eggs. Four to twenty Roughly? For like a nightcrawler, it's about 420. It can be as little as 120 is the highest I've seen. Right. Um, and then there's little baby worm eggs in there that are now fertilized that will sit there for like, um, I, I can't remember how many weeks. Two
2: to three weeks. Okay. And then you get little newborn babies. Yeah. And they can do this every seven to 10 days. Yeah. Which is yet another reason why they're abundant and surviving and thriving.
1: Well, then the other the other point is both worms that are in this mating process ...can become pregnant or can lay a
2: fertilized cocoon. So there is no such thing as just a male worm or a female earthworm. They're no, both. they're hermaphroditic. That's pretty awesome. Yeah.
1: Um, really, that's not, that didn't come across in this paragraph?
2: Uh, I was slightly confused. I'll rewrite it then. Just slightly. I'll rewrite it. Uh, you don't have to do it now. <laughs> well, I need to make a note, too. Okay. Okay. Uh, Their life expectancy is pretty impressive, too. A nightcrawler can live up to 20 years, but generally live about six to nine, which is, man, that is a long time when you're talking about little tiny things that live underfoot. Yeah. You know, compared to, like, an insect. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Uh, Red wigglers, two to five years. Gray worms, between (laughs) 1.25 and 2.6 years. Yeah. It's very specific. Yeah. Well done. That's a Murataki. Who who came up with that one? Oh, really? Yeah. So that's a long time, even for the lowly, ugly gray worm. Two and a, two and a half years is pretty pretty good.
1: Yeah, and they actually they have this thing called um, estivation, which is a form of hibernation.
2: Yeah, I thought that was really cool too.
1: Um, it, it's actually more efficient than hibernation. In hibernation, like you like a bear that's sleeping, they have to gorge themselves before they hibernate because right. they're going to be their their metabolic processes are still. Operating. Right. So they're still using up fat stores and food stores. With estivation, it's pretty much as close to death as you can come. Like almost all of your body processes just stop. They just curl up in a little wormy ball, right? Yeah, to to keep their mucus
2: supply abundant. So that's the only thing they're doing is creating mucus. Pretty much. To stay moist.
1: Yeah, and the reason they're doing this is because worms definitely have like preferences for like the temperature. Um and the conditions on the ground, the moisture, and when things just don't meet their liking, they estivate. So you can imagine that during the ice age, a lot of worms estivated and died, right? Because it didn't get any better for ten thousand years. Well,
2: when they they're cold blooded, but when they freeze, they die. Yeah. Um, uh, you were talking about their preferences uh, yeah. between fifty and ninety percent humidity, which is why Georgia has lots of worms. Mm-hmm. Uh, between 59 and 86 degrees Fahrenheit, is about what they like. They can survive, but they're not going to be as active and thrive and outside those conditions. Right. That's like when they're most active is between those. And um, they will eat any kind of organic matter that's decaying. But this is kind of cool. They found out they actually like certain stuff more than others, which yeah. is neato. Yeah. And the way I read it was because they like the taste, or at least... <laughs> That's how I anthropomorph, uh, is that, anthropomorphize. Is <laughs> That is so close species. Wow. Uh, in Washington State, they prefer maple over oak. Yeah. And right here in Georgia, they prefer clover over grass. Yeah. That's pretty neat. Yeah. I got lots of clover in my yard, too. They'll eat the tar out of that stuff. So I, especially I got if you, tons of worms if in my yard. If you
1: pulled it and buried it, it would be gone like that. I wonder how they do in the clay here. Uh, you know? They do very well. As a matter of fact, they are the reason why. Well, they're one reason why any water can percolate through the clay.
2: But man, I had clay in my backyard that like was impenetrable. It seemed like
1: worms can worms can penetrate it. Really, it's, to a certain extent, yeah. Man, um, the uh, one of the so pretty much what Darwin came up with was that earthworms are extraordinarily helpful. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'll talk about in a minute, like scientists have come to realize like, okay, well, they're still an invasive species. And as a result, like they, they're, it's not all beneficial. Right. But let's talk about the helpfulness first. One of them is basically burrowing down through dense clay, dense soils yeah, and creating places called biopores, macro pores, basically holes in the ground, underneath the ground that let water percolate down. Yeah, to prevent flooding above ground,
2: which also filters that water. It does as it goes down to the like the water table, I guess. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, it allows roots to grow more easily. Aeration in plants aerates. Yeah, yeah. It brings oxygen down. It basically makes soil more usable for the stuff above ground.
2: Well, and they're just basically little tilling machines. Yeah, they're moving the earth under there, so you don't have to.
1: Right. We talked about um, nitrogen fixing. Uh, with their castings where they, they take about 25%. So castings are poop, is that right? Yeah, that's, that's a nice word for their poop. Okay. Worm castings. <laughs> um, and apparently Darwin calculated that in 10 years, 10 years worth of worm castings would cover an acre of, of land about 2 inches thick. So if you took all the worm castings produced by a group of worms in an acre yeah. in 10 years, you have two inches of worm casting.
2: That's crazy. Yeah. And they and like you said earlier, I think they only take about 27% of the nitrogen for themselves. Yeah. They're like, world, you can have the other 73%. Yeah. And again, it's, it's in
1: a usable form now as a nutrient. Pretty awesome. Is. Yeah.
2: Um, but it's not all good. No, it's not all good. Because check. they eat too well, and they are an invasive species, so... Because they consume, uh, what do you have here, 9,240 pounds or 4,200 kilograms of organic litter for every hectare in 11 weeks, that's too much because spiders and lizards and arthropods and snails and frogs and slugs and everything else living down there needs that stuff as well. That's their home. But the, the worms are taking it for themselves. And they well, give back. Uh, they well they definitely do like nitrogen right but they're taking too much
1: right so um the also that there's that litter horizon that layer of le- of leaves right above the soil yeah um there's this the layer that's closest to the soil surface um that's at the bottom of this leaf layer is called duff it's like the spongy dark yeah organic material that is actually a nice little place for a seed to safely gestate sure so without that duff, without it being there long enough for a seed to start to germinate—sorry, not gestate, but germinate—right? Um, understory plants, like smaller plants, saplings, plants mm-hmm. that aren't going to grow as big as trees in a woodland, um, are they have trouble taking hold. Yeah. And actually, you can see photos side by side on the internet of b- like without
2: worms, right?
1: With worms, and like the difference is like just this wasteland like with worms. Right. It's missing all sorts of little plants that you see should be there but aren't because the worms are eating their habitat. That's sad. Actually, like it can reduce the understory canopy between like 25 and 75% the presence of earthworms can because they eat so much so fast that uh, not enough leaf litter is falling. Yeah. To, to keep the worms happy and allow seedlings to grow or keep a place for spiders to live, that kind of thing.
2: Well, and not just spiders, but that works its way all the way up the chain because you're going to have mammals, larger mammals, that are going to want to eat vegetables right. and leaves. And if they're not there, then they're going to be in trouble. Yeah. And then we're in trouble.
1: Yeah. What about the deer? <laughs> Where are we going to go without deer?
2: Uh, I go to the chicken uh, section of my grocery store. Everything works out.
1: You eat chicken instead of deer?
2: I don't eat eat deer. Okay. I don't, I mean, against it. I just don't come upon it that much.
1: Yeah, you have to go to, like, one of those um, processing places out in the country. They always have, like, deer for sale. Yeah. Yeah. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments, where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very
2: nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. That's right, there's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the
0: App Store. Game on! Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
2: They are also contributing to global warming in a way because they are uh, emitting lots of uh, carbon as they they go through all this organic matter that's going to. Some of, some of the carbon is going to be released there. Yeah. Or some of it's going to be released as carbon. And, uh, they, they have a stat here from Colgate University. 20, what are they?
1: New York. No, Colgate. Oh, Colgate.
2: Go, fighting uh, toothbrushes. Fighting toothbrushes. Um, they contribute as much as 28%, uh, an additional 28% of carbon, uh, released from the soil. So that's substantial. Yeah.
1: But. There are other studies that show that actually, depending on where you are, like that uh, Colgate was a North American study. They found that, like in Malaysia or Vietnam, right. like they're actually better. They actually lock carbon into the soil. Somehow. Oh, really? So it really depends on where they are. But huh. they're not an invasive species in that study in Vietnam. They were native.
2: But at the end of the day, they do a lot more good here in North America than bad, right?
1: Probably. Depending on whether you're a spider or a small
2: shrub that lives in the woodland. What if you're a (laughs) human? If you're a human, yeah, you love the worm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I have a couple of additional little facts. Uh, The biggest worm, I know you found some in Japan, but the Australian gypsum earthworm, Mm -hmm. I saw 12 feet long, two pounds. Wow. That's a lot of worm. Yeah. And what was the Japan one? Was that just another giant earthworm?
1: There's just a bunch of, like, I think because Japan's been a culture for so long, there's mm-hmm. just been a lot of reports on record of right. giant earthworms found by farmers. So they had a lot of stories. It's worth
2: Googling giant earthworms. Yeah. Because people have these things wrapped around their neck and stuff.
1: Yeah, and it's just this big, mindless worm. Like no, They're not aggressive like they're depicted in Tremors, but they're still like, whoa. <laughs> uh,
2: they can eat their weight every day. Saw that. That's a good one. They are able to move forwards and backwards, but they like moving forwards. Yeah, yeah, okay. And I didn't know this. If the soil dries up, some of them can actually lose their clitellum. But once they get moist again, it can come back. Cool. So that's another survival uh, adaptation, I guess. That's very cool. Pretty cool. So
1: you got anything else? Do you ever eat them? How to eat fried worms? I never did, I don't think. If I did, I've blocked it out of my memory because I I don't recall eating worms. I definitely haven't. It it wouldn't have been fried. It would have been like somebody was like, here, eat this. (laughs) Right. Raw. Yeah. Worm sushi. Yeah. But no, I haven't. That was a great book, though.
2: Did you read that? Sure. Oh, sure. Classic. Wasn't it like Judy Bloom? No. It was, uh, I think it was written by a man, and they made a movie about it. I never saw the movie. I didn't either. There's no way I was going to spoil that childhood memory that's good thinking Chuck
1: alright well uh, if you want to learn more about earthworms probably wait a couple weeks and then go uh, see the edited published version the better version that includes the fact that they can move forward and backwards about earthworms Mm -hmm. uh, just type in earthworms in a couple weeks uh, at the uh, search bar at howstuffworks.com and I said search bar which means it's time for listener mail
2: that's right, Josh. Uh, this is an email. Before we do the email, though, we have a, a quick announcement. We get messages from our fans from time to time around the holidays that are suffering in some form or another. Because although the holidays are a great time of the year for, for most folks, sometimes it's a very sad time of year for others. Sure, yeah. And uh, we just want to say generally that we're thinking about you guys every time we get one of these emails we reply, and it's, it's you know, it's very sad, and we wish there was more we could do. But we, uh, we're we thinking about you during the holidays, and we hope everyone out there in this Stuff You Should Know Army is uh, is hanging in there. Yeah. That, nice
1: check. that was very nice of you. Right.
2: So on to the email. I'm going to call this uh, Sherpa, overdue Sherpa email from Grace. Uh, hey, guys. And Jerry, using it as a collective, she points out. I know this is a while back, but I actually met a Sherpa. He's a kid who went to my school for a little while and he was totally cool with me asking him a 1,001 questions. Uh, he thought it was cool that I knew some information, and when I told him about your podcast episode, he wanted to listen to some of it. But before I give you his feedback, here's his story. Until he was five, he lived in a village near Mount Everest, but not so close that he ever got a good look at it. I couldn't imagine he was that near it then. I would think you'd have to be really, <laughs> really near it to not get a good look at it. Oh, maybe that was the case. Huh. He was so close. Yeah. It was just like a, a wall. A wall of rock. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and she says even if he did get a good look at it, he was only five. So he may not remember it. Gotcha. Uh, he had to leave his village, though, because they were threatened by the Maoists. So he moved to a city as a refugee, uh, and he lived there until last year. From what I understand, they were still under the threat from Maoists, so they came to America as a refugee still. Um, here's his little additional facts. Is the plural of Sherpa is Sherpas, so we were right. Cool. Uh, you pronounce the region uh, Solu-Kumbu correctly, and he, he was very excited about that. Nice. And he said there are a lot of potatoes now. Remember we, they started growing potatoes at a certain point? Oh, yeah. And that's the bumper crop, I guess. Nice. So uh, that's all he heard of the podcast, only about five minutes of it. He didn't. Uh, Grace didn't want to make him listen to the whole thing. Because she felt like he already knew most of the stuff, and she didn't want to bore him. Right. <laughs> so uh, he was excited about it, she was excited about it, and she just wants to say thanks for reading this on the year. Sweet. And that is from Grace. Thanks a lot, Grace.
1: Thank you to your Sherpa friend, too, for yeah.
2: um, supporting us. And welcome to America, Sherpa boy, and uh, good luck here.
1: Thanks, <laughs> Chuck. Um, wow, Chuck, you're just spreading glad tidings all over the place, aren't you? Of great joy. Yeah. Um, if you want to spread glad tidings to us or to anybody else through us, you can send us an email at stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The How Stuff Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?
2: Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals,